Welcome to Josh Scanlon Podcast. It's May 25th, 2019. Got an interesting one for today. Uh, my friend Jack Zarinsky from MySafeBridge.com is going to join us. Uh, Jack and I see eye to eye on a lot of things in the financial advisory industry. And we're going to have just a, a discussion on the, uh, the the pros and the cons of the financial advisory industry, which I think you'll get a lot out of, especially if you're looking to hire somebody. Uh, and we, bo- we both think you need some kind of financial planner, some kind of third party. Un- uh, someone who's just not affiliate, not the word I'm looking for, but someone who has an unbiased approach uh, to guiding you. We talk about uh, how fiduciaries hold themselves out to be fiduciaries when tr- and truly they're not. Uh, we talk about the business of selling assets, i.e. I'm going to charge 1% to you. I'm going to make $10,000. I'm going to charge 1% to that guy. I'm going to make $20,000, even though you're doing the same exact work. Uh, we talk about commissions and life insurance. Just a lot of good inside baseball stuff that I think uh, you'll get some out of, even if you're not part of the industry. Interesting about Jack, another engineer. I just uh, I enjoy, for some reason, talking to engineers, uh, the, the logical thinking, the mathematic uh, way they look at it. I uh, studied engineering in, in uh, Duke. He got a baseball scholarship to be a pitcher for Duke University. Went there, studied engineering because they did not have a business school. I think he said he worked for uh, in engineering for a few years. Then, uh, but he always liked the financial industry, so he became a financial advisor. He's had his own firm for for a while, uh, but only just recently started doing flat fee. And the reason why I just man, I hope I hope this takes off. I think the flat fee model is is a wonderful concept and i hope uh advisors and clients both embrace it um I, there's just like jack says look you're not hiring an advisor to do anything relative to the markets in terms of investing the, the advisor isn't doing anything the markets are doing everything the advisor is just you know i mean it's just not it literally is just second it's secondary there's nothing that the advisor is doing except hurting you with fees but you are hiring an advisor to help you organize your financial lives to bring news of what's happening in the tax code, make sure your state plan is in order, the whole thing. Uh, make sure you stay diversified, take tax losses when you can. I mean, that whole thing. Uh, that's And a lot of times you do need a third party. I completely agree with that. And I, and you got to pay. Now, what I like about Jack saying, look, I just charge flat 5,000 bucks. You know what you're getting. Doesn't matter if you get a million bucks, I got 10 million bucks, got 500,000, I charge, uh, uh, charge $5,000. Doesn't matter if you got nothing, if you got the income to support a $5,000 fee I charge. And we're going to do everything. And I, I just love it. I, I, I find it to be a, a breath of fresh air. There are people more and more going that realm. And uh, and I just hope they catch on because I think it's great. So uh, I'm excited to bring this to you. I think you'll get a lot out of Jack. He's updating his website as we speak. is MySafeBridge.com. And uh, if you're interested in chatting with Jack, uh, he's got my, you know, my endorsement for sure. Um, I don't know what he will be in terms of how you deal with him. That'll be completely between you all. But uh, now he's not paying me or anything to give him positive referrals. I just like the idea of the flat fee financial planning. And I hope, I hope it takes off because the financial advisory industry, uh, we're doomed if we keep going the way we are. And I just, uh, it's too bad because people need us. That's a fact. Um, And we need each other and we need to be supporting the guys are doing it right. So hope you find this of interest. And uh, as always, if you want to support this podcast, share the episode, go to my YouTube channel, subscribe, like, give me a five star rating on wherever you're hearing this. I do have a subscribe star page, www.subscribestar.com if you want to support me. I, I ask a $10 month donation. You can do it for a month. You can do it for 20,000 million months, whatever you want. Uh, but if you would do that, that'd be great. And then, of course, just uh, as always, give me a good rating on the uh, on, on, on the podcast, wherever you find this. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, my friends. So welcome again to the Josh Scanlon podcast. It is a wonderful opportunity that uh, I'm bringing to you. Uh, my man, Jack Zarinsky uh, from Jack, what's your firm's name? SafeBridge, www.mysafebridge.com is how to find us. Yep, right on. So Jack is, uh, I met Jack through an affiliation I had uh, through a Facebook financial planning website. I've ever, never actually met with him in person, ironically enough, but he and I text each other eh, probably bordering on five or six times a week, as a matter of fact, uh, sharing some of our frustrations with the financial planning industry. Uh, sharing our hope and motivation to get it to change to benefit the client, which 
is amazing that uh, the first and foremost focus, which is client financial planning, doesn't seem to be front and center for many financial advisors, unfortunately. And I'm not here to disparage the entire industry. There are many, many good people in it for sure. But once you see the light, you cannot go back and not unsee the light. And once you see the light, we realize the financial planning industry really needs to change because it's not, it's just, there's no way it can hold itself out as client service first uh, in terms of the way they're charging, the way their fees are structured and things of that nature is just not. And then very loose with some of the languaging as well. So so Jack has been a financial planner for many years, has his own firm, has his own firm for many years. And uh, and Jack, just take a minute to introduce yourself, who you are, your whole thing, if you don't mind. Sure. Jack Sarinsky, certified financial planner. And I founded SafeBridge, which is a registered investment advisor. And the reason I founded my own registered investment advisor, even though I outsource my investment management to uh, some very fine money management companies, uh, in particular, typically Vanguard, not typically, always, either Vanguard or Dimensional Fund Advisors. The reason I formed my own registered investment advisory to do that is because I simply could not offer clients a fair deal under my old, I was under two prior registered investment advisors. And what I mean by fair deal is a fair fee for the value that they were getting. And to be more specific, um, under the old registered investment advisors, I had to pay uh, an unseemly large amount to them, to the registered investment advisor before I made a penny. So for me to be able to make anything, at least to make a living, I could not offer my clients a competitive deal. And I thought, well, this has to change for two reasons. One, it's not fair to the client. Two, I'm losing business because I, I cannot be competitive. And so that's yeah. the genesis of my business. And you started your firm, I mean, a long time ago. How long ago has it been? Well, I started as an advisor a long time ago. SafeBridge itself was registered in late 2017. Okay. So this is yeah, our, uh, yeah, second year. Okay, so you were you've been in the business a long time. Then you said uh, in 2017, I gotta I gotta change the way I'm doing business and I'm going on my own. That's exactly right. I I. Okay. I did it with gotcha. some hesitation because of the added responsibility, but uh, I thought, well, there, uh, this is not going the way it should be going. It needs to be done right, and the only way to do that was, unfortunately, to do it myself. Now, where where are you located? Outside of Washington, D.C., in Fairfax, Virginia, and we I just added an office, uh, a representative of my advisory firm down in your neck of the woods uh, in the Sandy Spring area of Atlanta. Really? That's interesting. Jack. Right on. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, next time you're in town, uh, let me know. We can get some lunch or something like that. Uh, that's we fantastic. all will get all together. Right. Yes, yeah. sir. That's fantastic. All right. Now, what's uh, what's your background? I mean, you're in high school. You're you know twiddling your thumbs. You say, I want to be a financial planner. I'm sure. So, what? Uh, how'd you get in the business to begin with? Where are you from originally? What's uh, tell us that little backstory, if you would. Born and raised in New Jersey, and. When I was in high school, between my sophomore year and junior year of high school, started to get pretty good at baseball. I was a pitcher. I was always a pretty good player, not a great player. And I, I got a lot better between those two years. And the uh, short story, I wound up going to Duke University on a baseball scholarship. I was a pitcher for the cool. team for four years there. And I was cool. an engineering major. Yep, was an engineering major, graduated in four years. Hey. Uh, engineering, not really my, not my bag. Um, All right. Business is much more my, my thing. But Duke doesn't offer business. Even today, they still don't offer, they don't have a business curriculum. So I was an engineer and I worked for years as an engineer and really? eventually transitioned. Yep, I did. I transitioned over to financial services. I have, at least when I do planning per se, I have an engineering type of mentality, meaning certainly with financial planning, we always hope for the best. We always hope for blue skies right. ahead and smooth sailing. Right. But in, uh, the right. one thing an engineer has to focus on more than anything else is avoiding failure. Uh, and yes. so one thing I'm always <laughs> insistent to show clients is we need to look at realistic worst case scenarios. Hey, if you can make it through those periods, right. then you have good reason to have peace of mind, which of course, I mean, what other purpose is there 
for planning than peace of mind. That's the whole thing. So yeah, that's how I weave my engineering background into my current day planning and advisory practice. Yeah. All right. Gotcha. So uh, after were you drafted or anything like that, or was there any a chance to go play minor league baseball or anything or, or what? That's a common question. And sadly, the answer is no. I was pretty good okay. college player. I had plenty of good days, had plenty of bad days too, but I'm for an athlete, average size, five foot 11. And back then uh, guys who threw really hard or fast, if you will, we're throwing 90 miles an hour today. Everyone is throwing more than 90 miles an hour, it seems. Um, and I was uh, like low 80s, so I was yeah. nothing exciting to the scouts. Gotcha. So I had a good four, four years, and that was that. And it's four years on scholarship, nonetheless, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, Duke, that's fantastic. I'm just curious because I tore my rotator cuff uh, bench pressing, and now I'm getting surgery next week or the two weeks from now. Uh, how did you ever had a rotator cuff? I mean, you're throwing pitches hundreds and hundreds. How do you not tear your rotator cuff? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever had an issue with that? I did during college and then after college. During college, it wasn't. I had um, well, I guess it was diagnosed as a biceps tendonitis my junior year. Not oh. the, uh, sorry, my sophomore year. Not the rotator cuff per se, but right after college, I was being a lunkhead, a meathead, trying to put on some muscle. And I was right. using weights, yep. dumbbells that were too heavy, and uh, my shoulder got in a position that was unstable, and the weight pulled it out, and I could literally hear the the, the tearing sound. And for about yeah. a year after that, I, I couldn't so much as throw a pebble. It hurt so badly, but it eventually healed up. I uh, just healed up on his own without surgery? After a year, yeah, but it was it was a long year. I mean, I literally could not even pick up a a pebble or a small stone and throw it without significant pain. So I, oh. I'm pretty positive. I never went to a doctor about it. I thought, oh, right. it's, what's the point? It's just going to heal up. So And it did, so, luckily. Is it fine? I mean, literally, you could you know, work out again and all that stuff now, no big deal? It is A-OK. -okay. Two thumbs up on both shoulders. So going back to the engineering, it's interesting, too, because what I always say is uh, to folks is financial planning is a paranoid bunch because we're always looking for the worst-case scenario and trying to solve that. Add to that your engineering background. <laughs> You're double paranoid, man, in terms of we can't allow for failure here. That's uh, that's interesting to me because uh, I find uh, there's a lot of Pollyannish stuff about uh, financial planning. Like, oh, man, you know, we've got 12. Well, Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey going to get 12% in small cap stocks. I'm like, I just, it's nuts that these kind of, and I'm not here to bash Dave Ramsey, but. I just find that to be incredibly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just not, just not kosher, man. That 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 even can per permeate through financial planning, or even financial planners who say bonds have averaged six percent a year, so we should. I just that's horrible. So, how did you determine going to a flat fee where you're charging clients just a simple flat fee? as opposed to what everybody else is. So back in the day, guys, folks, Jack knows this, but it was all commission-based. You got paid, and I've talked about this a million times on the channel, you know, 5.5% to sell you a mutual fund. Those days went away at the dodo bird. So now it's assets under management, where people are charging 1% of your asset base. So if you have 500,000 bucks, you're paying $5,000 a year, uh, regardless of how your investments are located in terms of are they in mutual funds or are they in ETFs, you know for a fact you're paying your advisor $5,000 a year. A lot of advisors, I'm looking at a Ameriprise statement as we speak here, Jack, and they got them in American Century Funds, uh, Fidelity Advisor Funds on top of the advisor fee that they're paying. So this person is paying 2%, again, unbe I guarantee you unbeknownst to her. So how did you say, you know, uh, hells of that, I'm going this other route. What was the uh, impetus for that? Yeah, two points, and I'll speak to this, and then if we could just go back to the to the planning point, I, I, I want to do yeah. that because that's one of my passion points too. But here, this is the reason why I went to a flat fee, and it, it goes back to the uh, formation of my registered investment advisory. The problem I have with assets under management charging as a percentage of assets under management is that once the client is beyond a certain threshold, and we can debate about, well, what's that threshold? Is it 300,000? Is it 500,000? Once you multiply that 1%, typically, sometimes it's more, it could be less, but that's what determines the annual fee 
what I was running into in my neck of the woods, and again, I'm in Northern Virginia, a lot of the people that uh, come to my workshops work for the government or work in support of the government, and they're all academically smart. I mean, nine out of 10, literally nine out of 10, that's no hyperbole, they have college degrees, they can do basic math. And what I was running into when I was under my old registered investment advisors is that I would propose an advisory relationship with them. We would talk about the fee uh, because <laughs> I'm an ardent believer that that has to be fully disclosed. I'd tell them a number, in this case, a $800,000 portfolio times 1%, which paid me next to nothing because I had to give almost all of that to my registered investment advisor. Uh, and the guy, the guy looked at me and said, uh, Jack, that's $8,000 a year. And I said, that, yeah. that's correct. And he said, what are you, you going to do for $8,000 a year? I mean, this, this is pretty <laughs> basic work. And you know, I had no place else to go. I couldn't go backwards. I mean, to, do, to go backwards, I, I would have been doing work for free, which, of course, no one wants to do. I mean, no one would expect anyone to do work for free. And from that, I just pivoted and had to do some soul searching and think, okay, what, where is the value point? Uh, how much is fair to charge for what's done? And a lot is done across the, the planning spectrum and the, and the investment advisory spectrum, but it's not necessarily worth 1%. Again, once you are over a certain threshold, and the number that I decided on, is $5,000 per year of a flat advisory fee. It's paid the same way people would pay the 1% or whatever they're charging another advisor. It comes out of their accounts. It comes out quarterly at 1250. But I have to say, you know, a big reason I went to that is because I don't want to feel guilty that people don't know what they're paying or to receive an email or a phone call at the end of the quarter saying, Jack, uh, $2,100 this quarter? I didn't even right. talk to you. Like, what are you doing for that? And I think right. people should ask those questions, um, yeah. in my opinion, and I think in your opinion, too. Too few people <laughs> do ask those questions for no other reason than they don't know to ask those questions. So, you know, you're, you're an ardent supporter of education, as am I. We're both passionate about it. That's, that's one of our commonalities. But, um, again, the reason that I, that I offered flat fee is because I – I think it's the best way to do it. There are other ways similar to that. Some people work hourly. I, I like that less. I just settled on the flat fee thing. I think it's most, most fair to both parties. And I have to say this, that rules out some people. Someone could say, well, you know, I really like you. I like your approach. I love your investment approach. I like the, you know, the, the, the planning approach you use. It makes perfect sense. Well, I have 150000 saved up and I'm making 100000 per year. You know, I have to tell them, I'm sorry, I cannot take you as an advisory client. It's never going to pass muster with the regulators. I can't charge exactly. someone $5,000 who doesn't have either a lot of assets, meaning at, at least 250 or 300 or a, a high enough salary or income to justify that, that planning fee. So that rules me out for some people, and that is kind of too bad, but that gets back to, all right, it is a business. I only have right. a certain number of hours in a day and a certain number of days in a month, and you know, I have to consider myself also in this. And so I settled on that, the, the flat fee of $5,000 per year. So going back to the guy with a million bucks, I mean, that guy's paying, you know, 10000 a year in a typical, uh, what's called AUM fee, folks, assets under management. So that guy is paying $10,000 uh, or lady uh, to his advisor um as assets under management and what we'll see for instance is on the uh the fisher uh we'll see these commercials for i think it's fisher yeah fisher investments will say oh we're on the same side of the table as you so we get paid more as your account grows and we lose money as your as your account goes down the irony of course is they don't actually lose money they just they're still making money off of declining account base but uh but anyway the issue about that is there what are <laughs> What are they doing more than what, what someone was charging a flat fee is for double or even triple or whatever the fees are? Uh, and, and, uh, and Jack and I have both been around this business for a long time, and we both said the answer is nothing. They're not doing anything more than what uh, flat fee advisors are doing or hourly advisors, however you want to do it. Do you, uh, you agree with that? Yeah, I do, but there's there, I do, but there's a, there's another layer or level to consider, and it's this. Yeah. Anytime an advisor is used, and again, uh, we we've spoken about this before, and I 
would pound the table on this. I am an ardent believer that everyone should have a financial advisor. The question is what kind of advisor and at what cost? And th- you know that's a yeah. long conversation about what's needed, but I am an ardent believer that everyone should have a financial advisor of some sort. But here's the thing, whenever a financial advisor, true financial advisor is hired, there are at least two layers of cost. One is the advisory fee. So for me, that's $5,000 per year, say for Fisher Investments, I believe it's, I don't wanna beat up on them, but I think it starts at one and a half or one and a quarter and it goes down to one once you're above a certain number of assets that's, that's common in that field. That's not the only layer of expenses. Wherever right. the money sits also has a layer of expenses. And a problem in the industry, a huge problem in the industry, and I know you've spoken about this before, is the use of high-fee mutual funds. So even if we yeah. take the average fee on mutual funds of about 1%, now maybe it's a little more, maybe it's a little less, let's call it 1%. So yeah. that, that uh, fella or lady with the $1 million portfolio who has an advisor to whom he or she thinks that they're paying $10,000. No, that's just the advisory fee. You need to ask what, if you don't know, and most people don't, unfortunately, what are the internal costs on the funds? That's often another $10,000, sometimes less, sometimes more. So that makes the fee 20. And if if I could just offer this up, I, I think you and I are in agreement on investment philosophy. The data is so deep and so long and reaches so far that to give yourself the best chance of long-term success, the best one can do in whatever market one is invested, let, let's say the U.S. stock market, that's a market. I'm not advocating only U.S. stocks or just stocks. I'm just saying, if you want to have exposure to the U.S. stock market, my firm belief, based on all the data, is that the best you can do is have the entire market, buy it all. So instead of looking for needles in the haystack, buy that whole haystack but minimize the cost. And for my clients, when I do that, the cost to do that anywhere from on the, on the low end, 0.04% or four basis points. So the true cost would be $5,000 plus 0.04%. If I use other funds, if I use dimensional fund advisors, their costs are a little bit more. There might be a reason why I would go to them for part of the portfolio. And that, that's a longer conversation. Their costs on equities are between 0.15 and 0.2, no higher than yeah. that. Compare that to the industry average of 1%. Now the true comparison is maybe, I don't have a calculator in front of me, 5,000 plus a small amount versus 10,000 plus another 10,000 uh, the way that other advisor charges. And that's where the real problem is in the industry. People do not know what they're paying and they don't know how their advisor is paid. Yeah. That's a real problem. No, one hundred percent agree. But again, the the act the the debate would be like, yeah, but they're they they can you know outperform. They can give you better returns, reduce the risk. So what says you? Interesting question. There is value, as I say. I feel strongly that there is value in an advisor. That's why I said everyone should have an advisor. Now, part of that value is in peace of mind. Part of that value is an asset allocation. None of that value, in my opinion, is an outperformance. Here's what I mean. I'll I'll tell you an interesting story that I encountered two two months ago, three months ago in a workshop. A fellow asked me after the workshop, why can't I pay my advisor more when, in this case, he makes money and then pay him nothing or pay him less when he loses me money? And I said, look, I I don't mean to talk down to you. I don't mean this with with any arrogance, but you have a fundamental fundamental misunderstanding of what's really going on. Your advisor is not making you any money. It's the markets in which your advisor has you invested that are making the money. All your advisor is doing is, in a sense, is taking away money. Now, hopefully he or she, in this case it was a he, hopefully is adding value on the tax side of things or on the prudent planning side of things. And again, there is there is value to offer there that I would argue is worth the cost as long as the cost is reasonable for an advisor. But advisors themselves don't make money. The problem is that the industry has trained people to think from decades and decades ago, and people still believe this, that it is the advisors that do make the money 
and it is not. The evidence is beyond overwhelming that the more an advisor tries to make you money, the less money you make. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, it, <laughs> yeah. All right. So I, well, I think that's well established, but it's still being permeated as if that is not. You see what I'm saying? And, and I don't get why. I just don't get it. Let's just put it that way, Jack. I don't. I don't get why this is still. Um, I hate to even say debatable because, frankly, it's not. No, it's it's not debatable. But I think the reason why it this um, it it is a myth, why it's still perpetuated, is because it's in the best interest of the advisors. Um, I'll take you back. We've we've talked about this offline before, and I, I I think you put this into one of my videos. Here's what I see is two fundamental real problems with the industry. One is the industry by and large. Now I'm, I'm a member of the industry, so I, I don't want to beat right. up on it too much, but there are, I'll beat up on the bad players. Right. There's a quote that I love from a guy named Morgan Housel, who's, uh, um, I believe he's, he's a full-time investor himself. He's, he's a critic. He's a blogger, smart dude. And he said in a nutshell, that the business model of most financial services companies plays upon uh, the fears, emotions, and ignorance of the clients. And unfortunately, most clients never realize this. That's one problem, and I think that is true. The other problem is this. Because it's a business, what I think the majority of the industry does is not only count on the ignorance and or fear of the client, but they look at a given problem in this case, let's say, well, someone doesn't know if they'll have enough money to retire or they um, they want to make sure that they're invested right and they just don't yeah. have confidence that, that they can do it themselves. Uh, they will look at that problem and instead of solving the problem for a fair fee, they will ask, well, how can we most profit from solving this problem? And that's why they use that, the high cost funds because oftentimes those funds pay them kickbacks, which of course never get disclosed because no one would ever want to invest in something that pays the advisor a kickback if they knew that the kickback was happening. Um, but it, that's, th those two areas are, are major, major problems. And again, one of the commonalities that you and I share is that yeah. education is fun and it's needed. And our challenge is, well, getting it out there in a way that's understandable to people to let them make their own decisions. If they don't like you or they don't like me, that is a-okay. Go where you're better off. Go where you please. Just know how things operate to, to yeah. protect yourself at least that much. So talk about, you were telling me about a, uh, a client, or not a client, someone who watched one of your webinars. And again, I'll, and folks, I'll put Jack's link to his, it looks like your website is going through upgrade right now, Jack, is that correct? It'll be, yeah, it'll be fully back up in oh, two, two, hopefully by the time this is uh, published. Okay. Um, uh, so J Jack does webinars uh, and things of that nature. We'll put links to all that. But um, so this lady watched one of your webinars. Uh, tell us a little bit about that with the, because uh, another pet peeve of mine is this whole misuse of the terminology fiduciary. And again, I'm not trying to bash the industry. I'm trying to bash the people who are going down the wrong path, being ignorant on their own, or even worse, being nefarious uh, with, with what they're doing, i.e. not shedding the light on their fee structure and whatnot. Those people need to be bashed. And we're not, I'm not going to call anybody out here because, hell, that could be liable. Or, well, I don't even know what it is. But uh, share that story with us about the lady uh, from your webinar. This is uh, this is nuts. I, I will, and I'm happy to. And I'll say first that the, the crux of this comes down to it doesn't matter really at all what an advisor says they do or how they say they're paid. It actually matters how they work and how they're paid. So judge them not by their words, but by their actions. Here's why this is a problem. Uh, a lot of people are aware well, certainly a lot of people have heard of the fiduciary standard, which is in a nutshell an in good faith standard where the advisor, <clears throat> where it is incumbent upon the advisor to act in the client's best interest, fiduciary standard. The other standard in the industry is the suitability standard. And it's common these days for uh, people to call themselves fiduciaries because it, it puts the client's mind at ease 
when they're actually not fiduciaries. So here's yeah. here's what happened. And, and, and let me say this. It's the licensing of the advisor that allows the advisor to call himself or herself a fiduciary. So a registered investment advisor or a representative of a registered investment advisor operates by law under the fiduciary standard. Everyone else, brokers, insurance licensed people selling product, they operate under the suitability standard which is a lot less desirable and won't go into all those details. So let's assume people know the difference. Lady called right. me who had watched the live stream of a workshop that I did. And she said, Hey, I really liked what I heard. And I, I, I kind of like some fresh eyes on my plan. So we talked for a bit. She told me that she was very happy with the firm where her money resided because they were a fiduciary. And as soon as she said that to me, my heart started to sink. Now I, I didn't meet this, you know, I never, wound up not meeting this lady. But my heart started to sink for and I said, well, tell me more. And I right. thought that I knew the name of the company that she was going to tell me. And she did. And I know how this company operates because I, I know the people in this company. And it's, it's frankly, too bad uh, how they how they do their business. But they are quick to say in their public seminars and in all their communications that they are fiduciary. Well, I would argue, in fact, that they're that they are not truly fiduciary, and I will explain why. They do carry the licenses. Uh, they are representatives under an invest a registered investment advisor. That's why they say that they are fiduciary. But they also carry securities licenses and insurance licenses that enable them to sell products that pay upfront commissions. Now, this is a little bit technical, but when we're delving into the fiduciary standard. Anyone who sells a product that pays an upfront commission cannot call himself or herself a fiduciary. You cannot because there's an inherent conflict of interest available. Well, in my opinion, you cannot. It gets a little murky. What's actually the definition of a fiduciary? <laughs> but this company was quick to say, oh, we're fiduciary. We, we have your best interest in mind. While they do, they do the same thing to all of their clients or, or close enough. They take the chunk of money that the client has and they put one third of it into non-tradable REITs. Not important what a non-tradable REIT is. What is important here is that they pay non-tradable REITs, pay upfront commissions of, I've never sold one, so I'm guessing here, in the neighborhood of 7 to 10% upfront and they offer no liquidity of the money. So if someone figures it out or doesn't like it a year or two later, too bad. You've got to wait for the end of the redemption period, which I believe is typically in the eight to 10 year range. There are plenty of publicly traded REITs that do the same thing that non-tradable REITs do that pay no upfront commission. If someone really wants to be invested in a real estate investment trust, that's, that's what a REIT is, uh, they can mm -hmm. do that with no upfront cost, no inherent conflicts of interest and full liquidity. Well, what this company did was put a third of this lady's money into REITs a third of it into fixed annuities, which also pay upfront commissions, uh. which I would argue taint the entire relationship. Yet they told her that um, they are fiduciary. Well, you, you, you can't do that. You, you can't call yourself right. a fiduciary and put someone in something that's clearly in your best interest as the advisor because of the upfront commission yet argue that you have their best interest in mind. Well, even though you can't do that, this, this company does do that. It's their business model. They are the prototypical company that preys upon the ignorance of the investor because there's, there's no way, no way that a reasonable person would choose that non-traded option that pays the upfront commission if that person <laughs> knew yeah. that uh, all, of, all of the issues with the non-tradable rate, including the upfront commission, which again, in my mind, you got to ask, you, you, you must know uh, when you're speaking with an advisor, how is it that you get paid? And if someone's getting paid upfront, boy, that is just a major, major red flag. Because the truth is in, in 2019, there really is nothing yeah. that is available that pays a commission that you could not get without a commission. Even insurance products today are available with yeah. no commission and that just keeps the relationship clean. It's funny. Uh, I get debates with all these uh, life insurance guys. Now, this isn't about fiduciary or not, but they're always saying, uh, I, not always. Let's just say some are saying, "Well, I'm get, I'm, you know, I'm paying five and a half to six percent of cash value on my life insurance, 
and I'll say, hey, let me see the illustration. I'm just showing the illustration, and they'll I'll see the illustration. Very few will, but you know, I look at the illustration. I'll say, if we dropped a hundred thousand dollars in there, what is the cash value in ten years? And never, Jack, ever is it one hundred sixty thousand bucks. So let's just use that. Let's just use six percent simple interest. It's never one hundred sixty thousand bucks. It's always right around a hundred thousand bucks. I'm sitting there thinking, huh? So you're getting five and a half to six percent is what you're saying that the customer is going to get and yet when we see the illustration <laughs> it's not worth five and a half to six percent annually year over year it's not it's not it's worth basically nothing why is that and it's just the same thing here it's the same flipping thing man i'm just it's just preying on the ignorant and that's why it's uh it's a wonderful thing that the internet is allowing less and less people to be ignorant but but now it's going the exact opposite. They're holding themselves out as fiduciaries when, in fact, they absolutely are not. And yet, if you think, not you, Jack, but folks listening, if you think it's only these guys that Jack's talking about uh, who does that, I, I'm telling you, you got to think again. Because the fiduciary word for somehow, there must be some guy in the Wall Street Journal or Susie Orman or something that says, use a fiduciary. And everyone wants to use a fiduciary as if it's a... Uh, you know, the, the second coming. And yet people, salespeople aren't stupid. They know where the freaking puck is going and how they can sell their products to get paid. It's uh, infuriates me. And I'm just sitting there thinking for all the SEC, the regulators that do, what is it that they can't figure this one thing out? If you are calling yourself a fiduciary, then you can't charge commissions. You, if the two things can't happen. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> ah! Yep, it's exactly right. Uh, it's a problem that's not going to go away because there's uh, there's too much money at stake. No, and it's too yeah. difficult for the regulators to stay on top, and that that's why you know one of my passions is while I'll say you know so somebody doesn't have to worry about their eyes getting glazed over. You don't need to know all the ins and outs of everything in the industry, but you do need to know a couple fundamental questions. And those questions, they're easy to remember, and they're simply this, and they fall under the under the genus of you have to know their angle. So one of my three three word keys is know their angle. You must know their angle. What's in it for them? And so the questions you right. simply ask are, how do you get paid, and right. how much do you get paid? And let's just talk real quick about um, the other side of the industry that does not sell commission-based products, that hold themselves out as fiduciaries, yet still can charge what I would argue, and I think you would agree, are exorbitant fees. That goes back yep. to the AUM fee. Let's exactly. take a client with, let's use that $1 million client. Even if the advisor is putting them in very low-cost, very well-diversified funds, to give them the best chance of long-term success. And I would say that does give the, the investor the best chance of long-term success. That's still uh, 1% times, 10, uh, times uh, a million is $10,000. That's a lot of money. Maybe in that case, there is adequate value being delivered. But let's compare that person to the $2 million client who right. has the same amount of complexity or simplicity in his or her picture. Why is the fee twice as much when it's literally the same amount of work. These are just keystrokes into a computer to select funds. This is not rocket science. The, the advisor does not watch the market every minute of every day. A lot of people think that's what happens. Exactly. exactly. And this is, this is the irony that you don't want your advisor to do that. <laughs> One of the best things an advisor can do, in fact, and the data supports this, one of the biggest value adds an advisor offers is to save you, the investor, from yourself in a sense. And again, yeah. uh, full humility in saying that. It's just knowing human nature that often people are their own worst enemies and it's because of their emotions. So the best yeah. an advisor can do is upfront, make an intelligent plan that you can live with, that you will stick with. And so when markets go crazy up, you don't kink your plan by saying, I want to take all my bonds and put them in the market. It's going to the moon. Right. No, you don't. Right. Because the market's going to turn. We made a prudent long-term plan. We're sticking with it. And likewise, when markets go down, um, the, the best the advisor can do for you is to say, just turn your brain off about it. it. It's going to end. It's going to turn around. The data is so crystal clear that, that individual investors really hurt themselves 
by acting on their emotions. So a big value add, again, of the advisor is to, to prevent that. It's like a coach, like an emotional coach to stop that from happening. But back to the point of how could one, how could you hold yourself out as acting in one's best interest if you're charging, say, $20,000 to manage a portfolio that the same amount of work that you're doing for someone else with a smaller portfolio that you're charging half the amount to $10,000 or say with a half million dollar portfolio where you might be charging $5,000 for the year. How do you justify that extra 10 or $15,000 a year in fee when the work is exactly the same? I mean, that's, that is a real problem. That's not in the client's best interest. And I don't, I certainly don't mean to be holier than thou about this advisors, good advisors, are worth something. No one would do this for free, and the value that they add is a lot. But at some point, you got to say, "Wait a minute, this this no, just doesn't absolutely. make sense." And you got to say, "How is this fiduciary standards? If you're charging, you know, guy over there uh, five thousand bucks, but guy over here fifteen thousand bucks, and literally are doing the same thing." And if the argument was, "I see guy over here four times a year to talk about his portfolio," and I see guy over there. Once you're to talk about your portfolio, that's that's not the right answer. That's the wrong. That's literally the wrong answer. If we're talking about the portfolio four times a year, uh, that's not. Uh, I just it's frustrating. And so, going back to the flat fee stuff, which is what you're doing, and I they're starting to get more and more traction. And again, I think it's taken longer than I would have anticipated. But what exactly do you do for your clients in terms of like, all right, so someone says, hey, I'm retiring from the DOD, Jack. I got a million bucks in my TSP. Uh, DFA, folks, Dimensional Fund Advisors and Vanguard, my two of my favorite firms out there. I love them. Um, I think D the one thing I don't like about DFA so much is they use this uh, evidence-based investing as their sales pitch. And I, I just, I hate that because it's just kind of like, Ugh. but they, they yep. have value-oriented stuff and they keep their fees relatively low and and they are active but relative active different than vanguard and so using dfa and vanguard covers both legs of the table in this regard that says dfa is using more of a uh, of approach uh, indexing but a different kind of way than vanguard does and i think combining them is i actually think is wonderful and i'm a, I'm a huge fan of both firms for sure um, but anyway uh, going back to what I was just saying is that so what what are you doing, Jack, to uh you know to earn your fee? You know, so someone says, Yeah, but Jack, five thousand bucks, that's still a lot of money. What uh what says you to that? Yeah, I would say it is a lot of money. And if someone has yeah. any question about it, then I would say, Well, you know, perhaps I'm I'm just not the guy or, or gal for you and you're certainly welcome to find someone who uh, you think is more worth the money. But to answer the question of what's done about it, the short answer is everything within reason. Uh, I don't right. go and purchase cars for people or negotiate, <laughs> negotiate lease deals. I don't do mortgages. Right. At, at this point, we don't do people's income taxes, but we certainly review the taxes. But the, the, the right. fundamental value adds are the peace of mind that there's a plan in place. And, and truly, overall, the broad scope is to act in the client's best interest, which means specifically this to maximize the chances that what they want to happen will happen no matter what. And those three words, no matter what, are important. And this goes back to something that you addressed at the beginning related to planning and you were picking on uh, Dave Ramsey's 12% assumption or someone else's assumption of 7%. Right. Yeah, the no and a lot of individual investors do this. They use, uh, they use average rates of return assumptions. Yes. And those are just, exactly. they're just completely invalid. The, the real world doesn't work like this. And again, it was a, a while ago, you were trying to come up with a word to describe, you know, it's just not, it's just not to describe planning under using an average rate of return. I would simply say this, it's not realistic. The world does not return, uh, excuse me, the world does not offer returns of seven, 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 or 12, right. 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. Inflation is never three, 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 three. It's just yep. not. And, um, there are three, two main cycles that people need to be prepared to go through, uh, or secular trends, we would call these. These are um, market behaviors over lengths of time from 15 to 20 years. That's historically, this is what has happened going back to about as far back as as history is recorded for U.S. markets, which is, it's not that long, back to 1900. I, I go back further than to 1926 when a lot of the recording starts. 
uh, back to 1900. I've seen other people go back to 1880, 70, 60, whatever. Um, right. But there, there are two main types of periods. One is kind of what we've experienced since the beginning of 2009 to today, which is essentially a bull market trend, which means very strong returns and low inflation, very strong returns in stocks and certainly in U.S. stocks and low inflation. Uh, that is what we all hope for going forward. But if you have any notion of reality of history of the world, you should know that those market conditions don't persist forever. The other type of market condition, and this is the type of condition that is really dangerous to uh, people who are planning to retire, if they don't take it into consideration, is this. Um, the more flatter or sideways markets, which can also persist for 15 to 20 years. And by sideways, I mean when stock returns might be, say, between 5 and 7% on average. Now, they're not going to be that every year, but they will average right. about 5 or 7%. But inflation will average more. And that's happened, right. I, I don't have the data in front of me, but it won. Oh, I believe three separate good. times Six, in history. 66 to yeah. 82. That's a, yeah, absolutely. Horrible. Horrible. That, yeah. Well, even if we look at... Um, not a perfect example is, but from 2000 through 2009, you know, the, the lost yeah. decade, as it's called, inflation wasn't high, but it was higher than the stock return. So the important point is, and stocks are not the only place to invest. I'm not an all stock guy. I, I, I'm a believer in, in diversifying with uh, some prudent bond selection. But let's leave that aside from even from 2000 through 2009, overall stock returns were significantly below inflation, maybe minus 1% per year on average, uh, versus inflation at average, call it three. So that's a neg basically a negative 4% delta. Well, if you're building your retirement off of assuming a 7% stock return, or 12% is just ridiculous, but a 7% stock return and a 2 or 3% inflation return, you're giving yourself a 4 or 5% positive delta there yeah. when you yep. might incur and a negative delta of 4 or 5% between your stocks and your inflation. And if you have not considered that, if you have not factored that reality in, then, I mean, the name of, name of my company is Intentional, Safe Bridge. When you're building a retirement plan, you're basically building a bridge over a valley. You don't want to touch that valley floor. That represents running out of money. Uh, to build that bridge safely, you need to test your plan against what has happened in the past. It's just an indication of what could happen in the future. It's not to say that what's happened in the past is going to happen in the future. But I think those sideways markets eventually will happen when, who knows, no one knows that. But right. that's, well, I mean, that's the, that's the exactly. notion of planning. It's got to be realistic. And so meaning it's got to incorporate reality. Well, and that's why I love uh, folks with an engineering mindset like yourself. I, I got another friend I was telling you before the podcast in San Diego who also studied, I think he studied chemical engineering in, in, uh, in college as well. And that, see, that's the kind of the mindset that says, hmm, let me analyze the data and look for the worst case scenarios to make sure that doesn't happen. If I'm, you know, if I'm a, I don't know, if I'm a, uh, an engineer building bridges and stuff, I can't have a 95% success rate uh, while people with their grandma are driving over the bridge and hoping that that 5% of the time it fails, uh, doesn't fail while she's on the bridge, if that makes sense. I, that's not going to be uh, advisable. Now, I can't be perfect, all right? I know I can't be perfect, but we can design a plan for the safe, like you said, man, the safe bridge to get you where you want to be under all circumstances to the best of our ability. And that's all you can do, and unlike... I think a lot of people, they say, oh, yeah, no, I'm using a 4% rule, and we got you 8% a year rates of returns. You're good, Mrs. Smith. You are good. And then they're not, A, disclosing their fees. They're not talking about the taxes. They're not talking about all the other stuff that goes into it. And so that's all based on a facade, uh, and, and that's simply it's simply unacceptable. There's just no other way around that. So, Jack, I want I got to wind up some because I'm up against the uh, – I have one hour on recording or else it takes away the whole thing. So, folks. What like I'm that's not a sales pitch for Jack, but it's a sales pitch for people who have fee only, or I should say flat fee only, financial planning. Where financial planning is what drives the discussion. 
not investment management. I just, it's not worth it for investment management. Now, if you pay via your investors, that's fine. I don't care about that. I do care that the financial planning is done with a mindset that says, what is the worst case scenario? What can we do to avoid that? And A, the, way, the first and easy way is to reduce your fees. There's no other way around that. B, though, is to design plans based on models going back historically. There's nothing else you can do. I mean, there's always a black swan. I get that. But at the end of the day, you got to use the data that we have, which is going back to 1871, essentially, is the, the kind of like the mar modern market data. Jack, last words on how people get in touch with you. Um, last words on thoughts. If anyone wants to inquire, you, know, you have uh, just tell us a little bit how they get in touch with man. Sure, they can always reach out if they like to me at www.mysafebridge.com. I do a lot of education locally in my market area. I'm working on developing some material, as you have done a wonderful job of. I'm getting it out and up on YouTube, and you've been proud of me. Uh, come on, get it out, get it out, get out. So that'll be coming in the future. <laughs> but the the, the the parting thoughts for me, again, are, yeah. are these for someone. Again, I, I will say, and I, I feel no shame in saying this, I do think that everyone should have an advisor of some sort at some cost. And the reason is because it's, I would argue, it is impossible to be objective with your own money. It doesn't mean you need to pay someone 1%. It doesn't mean you need to pay right. someone $5,000 a year but it is well worth at least having checkups to have an objective third party, look at what you're doing, look at your costs. And the other parting thought is this, uh, you must always know their angle, particularly in yeah. the financial services industry and ask them, how do you get paid and how much are you paid and have answers to those questions before you even consider taking what right. they say, what they recommend into consideration. You simply must do that it's a caveat emptor world, buyer beware. How do you protect yourself? It's just not that difficult. You just got to ask those questions and then make judgments upon the recommendations. And I just add, don't let them get by with just saying 1%. Have them say that in dollars. I'm telling you, Jack, it's uh, uh, some of the sales literature I see, they say, oh, never say the dollar amount on how much do you charge. And the reason for that is because when people say, that's 20,000 bucks a year. I wasn't making $20,000 a year until I was 35 years old. He said, why would I pay you that? So have them folks tell you as a dollar amount, not a fee base or percentage. That That's that's a cop-out. So, all right, Jack. Hey, just hang tight because I'll have a, a couple follows up. But uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, don't hang up yet, but uh, I'm going to.